Welcome to the Influencer Collective Show. We have another very special roundtable today. As you know, we've rolled out a couple of these so far, uh, spanning from veterans, food innovation. And today we're going to be talking about social impact, impact investing, conscious capitalism, and really, you know, the trends that we're seeing in the industry as well as what the future looks like. So we have a really great group of speakers and guests today. uh, And I will let them introduce themselves. Um, if we want to start with the wonderful Karen. Thank you. Thank you for having having us on the show today, Jen. Um, honored to be here and part of this conversation. Um, so my name is Karen Worsazic, and um, by day, I advise families and nonprofit organizations on how to actually put capital in motion for good. So a lot of the work that I do is centered around um, exactly this topic, but mission alignment, values alignment. Um, the A lot of the work as well is born out of my the other hat that I wear, which has been about two decades of working on poverty alleviation strategies. So I founded a nonprofit that uh, squarely addresses these issues through a project-based approach, mentoring social entrepreneurs, um, largely east of Anacostia in the Washington region. And so that work informs a lot of the for-profit capital work that I also do. So again, happy to be here. Awesome. Jeff? Hi, Jen. How are you? Good. How are you? Good to see you. So good to see you. And I have to thank you first for having me and also thank you because I haven't seen Steve Polo in about a year and it's, it's, it's really been messing with my, with my psyche. So um, I'm, uh, I'm glad you, you brought us together. um, At least even if it's only virtually. Amazing. That's what we're about building and building and connecting people, building connections. Yeah. Um, so I'm Jeff Cherry. I am the founder uh, and CEO of a thing called the Conscious Venture Lab and the managing partner of the Conscious Venture Fund. Uh, we're uh, a startup accelerator and venture capital fund uh, based in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, uh, the, uh, our fund and our accelerator really focus on three sort of legs of the stool, we call it, first of all. We believe that the winners, winning businesses of the future are going to be those businesses that focus on creating value for all of their stakeholders, not just myopically for shareholders. So that's sort of the underpinning of what we call conscious capitalism or stakeholder capitalism. Um, We believe that there are talented, innovative, uh, intelligent people equally distributed across society, but sometimes opportunity are limited based on race or gender. So we focus on um, uh, investing in and training and reaching out to underrepresented minority female founders. And uh, I was born and raised in New York City. I'm a city kid, so we believe in investing in anything that makes living in the city easier, more just, more joyous, more equitable, more profitable, more prosperous for all of us. So that's what we do here at the Conscious Venture Lab in Baltimore. Love it. Love it. And Steve? Yeah, so I'm grateful to you, Jen, for a whole bunch of reasons. I, 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 I texted Karen earlier uh, last night and I said, so tell me again what I'm doing here. Uh, and so she made a good joke, but I realized it was so I could see Jeff and make him happy. So there, so there you go. Uh, <laughs> <Sorry>. But, <laughs> you know, I think Something what you're doing, Jen, 
<laughs> exactly. Jen, I think what you're doing is really great. And I'm really, really honored to be a part of it. Um, I, I think that this particular topic is so important to, you know, to kind of quote Karen, my day job is a managing partner of OPX and we're a design consultancy. So we analyze how companies operate and we redesign them to work better. Uh, my other job is the board chair of Global Impact, which is a fairly large charity. Last year, we distributed $159 million to charities that help the world's most vulnerable people. So it's kind of really, besides my family, the best thing I do. So I'm really happy to be here and, and thanks for, for asking me. Of course, always always a good conversation with Steve. I mean, we have to have you. And um, last but not the least, Ticelli, nice to meet you, by the way. <laughs> Jen, great to meet you. And thanks so much for having me. Um, of course. Super excited to be here. So I'm Tysley Williams, and I'm a caring adult who spends the day as the Chief Development Officer at America's Promise Alliance. And we partner with um, corporate entities, local governments, to create an ecosystem by which every young person in America can succeed. And so we, too, do a lot of work uh, centering equity making sure we are investing in the elimination of all isms, whether that's ageism, racism, classism. Uh, it's just really great, meaningful work and really excited to talk to you a little bit more about it. And outside of America's Promise, I show up as a caring adult who leads uh, the board of directors at a charter school here in DC. It's a weekday boarding school for children impacted by the foster care system. So uh, both my professional and volunteer commitments uh, lead me to invest in the promise and potential of young people in America and in the District of Columbia. Amazing. Well, thank you for the great work that you're doing. Um, empowering the youth is really important right now, um, particularly just for the future leadership and entrepreneurship and for the corporate America. So thank you for the great work that you're doing. And I'm so happy that you were able to join us today. Um, I want to start with a topic uh, that really I think is important to kind of launch the conversation. Um, social impact versus conscious capitalism. I know that Jeff, you and I have spoken about this before on a previous podcast and Karen, we've spoken a lot about um, social impact and impact investing. So I thought it would be great just to kick off um, the conversation with that. And um, you know, if either Karen or Jeff wanted to start there, that'd be great. Karen, I'll leave it to you. Okay. Yeah, happy to kind of jump in on this one. It's an interesting, it's a good question because it's one that I think this year has really um, started to parse the definition of the two a bit for people. Um, in the past, it was a little bit gray, but as I see it, and, it's, and, and in this space when I'm advising, and again, like Ty say, I serve on a board where we are a chair of the investment committee of this organization in Washington, Washington uh, based organization and pivoting entirely to um, mission alignment. And a lot of that out of the construct of the, the legacy social, social capital elements, you know, so how different than say um, reframing or reimagining capitalism, which is what I think conscious capitalism is a little bit of what Jeff will kind of weigh in too, starts to then say, hey, should, are we actually thinking about capitalism as a financial construct or code in our country the right way? 
Um, but before that, predating that, social capitalism in, in the work that I have seen and been a part of is really taking themes that not necessarily connect back to the financial markets or economic empowerment. Right, and so it's only until I think the recent five years we're actually drawing connections that say, hey, because of these social and borrowing Tysley-isms, that's actually now making it such that people can't participate economically in a fair and just way. And, and I think that road leads to a little bit of reimagining what the social contract is for capitalism. Um, and so I kind of offer that, and that's been a lot of work I've been actively engaged in this year where um, directors or boards are coming to me and saying, hey, help me think about the balance sheet differently to make it just very real. Everything kind of comes back to if I, if my livelihood is attacked because of all the, the issues in the world and in our country, not being addressed through the capital markets and through equity and just systems that have left large groups of people out. How do we fix that? What does the stakeholder group now look like? And how am I hurting that with investments or not? Um, and that's been really eye-opening this year for some of the social pieces to kind of now connect to the financial pieces, which I think in the early days, I've been at this work for nearly 20 years on the impact side and never was part of that conversation really. It was really just exclusionary. Hey, I don't want to buy tobacco or I don't want to be involved in mining, but never connecting how, how we're leaving groups of people out from development. And so, um, which attack livelihoods, which then break down other systems when people feel vulnerable and at risk. Um, so I kind of uh, kick that over to you, Jeff, to kind of add to. Um. Well, you know, that's a, it's a really um, a great way to start this off, Karen. And I'm so, um, I'm so um, buoyed by the hear you say that because as Steve knows, I've been at this for a very, very long time, right? So started um, uh, back in the early 2000s um, <clears throat> when Steve and I were doing work together, thinking about some of these ideas and ended up working on a couple of books on this idea of firms of endearment and conscious capitalism with Raj Sisodia. Um, you know, when we think about the difference between the two, and I love the way, you know, some of the, there's a lot of nuance and things that you talked about, Cameron, but we think about the difference between the two. So the, the social impact of social entrepreneurship world started, you know, grew out of the environmental movement in lots of ways, right? So um, it's got an environmental pedigree. So we think about social entrepreneurs that are solving an environmental or a social problem through business. And we love those entrepreneurs and we still support them. The notion of conscious capitalism, though, is, is more about how do you show up in the world as a capitalist, right? And how do you think about capitalism as an institution in society, not as an institution that's separate from society, not just as financial institution, but as an institution that is embedded in society. And therefore, how should we operate as capitalists, right? So we, you know, we always talk about this and, and Polo's heard the story a million times that when I was back in the consulting world with my old partner, Rick Frazier, and we've done work for um, for some not-for-profits that could have been, you know, clearly in the social realm, the social impact realm, they were, you know, no pun intended, doing the Lord's work, that were simply miserable places to be, that they didn't understand culture, 
They didn't understand that if just because you were, you know, solving the water scarcity problem, that you couldn't really be a jerk at work, that you actually had to do other things to make it more impactful. So that's sort of where we started down this path by, you know, seeing that happening in real time and then really seeing these businesses that we were working with in the late eight, late 90s, early 2000s that were, um, you know, they were coming to us, asking us a different set of questions about their relationships. How do we get employees to care about this place like we do? Suppliers to feel like partners, communities to welcome us in, customers to want to be in a relationship. And the punchline is always, if I want you to care about me, I should care about you first. So these companies were creating what we call these cultures of caring, which to the untrained eye looked like corporate social responsibility or social impact. But, but they were like, no, this is really embedded in our business that we have to think differently about the way that we practice capitalism if we want to be most successful. So I think that, you know, the last, certainly the last 12 months has really shown a giant bright light on that as an idea, because this idea, as Karen put it, that the social compact, the social contract between us and our companies, between our companies and our communities, between capitalism and society, we have to think way different about that coming out of both, you know, from in a world where, you know, COVID and, you know, uh, accelerating violence against African-Americans against by the state, we're going to have to think way differently because even that part of the story has its roots in economic, you know, uh, um, instability and, you know, and, and economic injustice. So I just think that this is, a, these things are coming together, but they're, as you say, they're, they're not the same. They're related, they're connected at the hip, but we really need to sort of um, start to elevate this idea of how do we want our, our capitalism to operate in society and not separate from society. It is. And I'll just add one final point because you kind of triggered a thought on that with this, this, the, who are the stakeholders, right? And so back to the uh, drawing this, the connecting this thread between the, the social impact and then the capitalism component never really was front and center until you really just, you really sit back and think about, okay, who, who owns the power and why? And where does the power originate? And so even a, even a publicly traded company's origin story around how it comes to be and who it serves has, has changed and needs to change so that the economic powers do shift to broader groups of stakeholders. And that's a little bit of what you're seeing. And there's going to be tension and disruption in that. Um, yeah. But I believe that's all, all good, um, ultimately. Yeah. So um, I don't know if you if you don't mind. So you know it's interesting because Jeff and I have had these conversations now for a really long time, and they they kind of began with the imaginary dialogue between Milton Friedman and John Mackey maybe 15 years ago, right? In the two definitions of what it meant to be a capitalist, and I think that the notion of social impact versus conscious capitalism is a Venn diagram, right? It's two circles. And they overlap, but they've yet to be coincident. And whether they will be or not will be determined by you know a whole bunch of things, not, not the least of which is how these companies evolve internally and the people they attract. And Jeff, you said something about culture. Well, we're going to talk about that later on because there's no way we can't we can't talk about that, right? But I think yeah. that 
in this evolution of capitalism, you're going to get, you know, pressure from both groups, which think it's not capitalist enough and it's not impactful enough, right? So it so it's a it's a kind of a razor thin line that some of these organizations can have to work. And the truth is, the future employees and the and the broader stakeholders are going to make the pick. Mm -hmm. They're going to decide because social dust justice and racial equity and access to capital and all these things we've been talking about are at the top of mind. In fact, they're the ethos of the two youngest generations that it, it can't get away from it. And you can choose to ignore it, but you'll ignore it if, you, if you're running a company at your own peril. And you will lose the opportunity to bring people into uh, an organization that acts like that for their reasons, as Jeff and I have been talking about for a long time, right? So I think that if companies want to compete, they have to evolve. And to your point, Karen, you know, folks have power, don't want to give it up easily, right? So we, we have to start modeling in our own lives. And, and, and this kind of thing you're talking about here, Jen, is one of those ways to do that, to influence people and recognize where we really need to go in order to be both consciously capitalist and socially responsible. So, yeah, and um, just to because I I think this is a great actual segue into corporate social responsibility and the future of the workplace because as a millennial, uh, the classic millennial, and introduced to the term impact investing and social impact back in my earlier agency days, and I just fell in love with it. And I was like, I'm not exactly sure what this means, but I want to learn about it. And it's just been ingrained since then um, and learning more about what the Case Foundation's doing, you know, meeting you, Karen. And, and, and I think that not only, I think this year has just opened up everyone's eyes across all generations to this term, to these different terms and particularly in the workplace. So um, I wanna give you know everyone an opportunity to kind of touch on, again, I feel like we're playing a dictionary game of defining all these different terms. Now we're gonna talk about corporate social responsibility that Jeff alluded to as well. And just kind of, you know, what's the temperature right now in the workplace, right? I mean, what's the temperature? So it's really, I'll just kind of interject Jen, a perspective from the not-for-profit sector, um, you know, Back when COVID unveiled, it was really interesting to me that Booz Allen uh, rolled out an innovation fund. And there you read the eligibility requirement. And for the first time ever, I saw that investments were being made not solely to not-for-profit organizations, but even to individuals who could actually solve social problems. And so within my sector, the term that we use is social good. We're kind of pulling away from philanthropy. Social good tends to imply being a driver, driving force of something positive. And to Karen's point, not just looking at shareholders, but looking at stakeholders. And there's a difference when you look at the fact that when we form and forge communities, regardless of where that community is formed, we are looking at the collective and the overall intent of driving positive outcomes. So what was really interesting to me in looking at Booz Allen's uh, call to actually solve social problems is I thought, wow, I'm now having to compete not only with B Corps, 
but I'm now having to compete with individuals. And it doesn't even matter anymore if I'm an independent 501c3, what is beginning to matter are the results. What's the return on the investment? And so when you give thought to corporate social responsibility, I think it shows up and it looks very different. And I think it's really exciting to see the various ways in which it's evolving and actually becoming a part of the business model. So it's going back to what Jeff introduced earlier. I think as we look at what psychology and economics is telling us about moral identities, people are driven to act when they can align with brands and see their personal principles. And so I think as we give thought to co corporate social responsibility, companies are really leaning in not only to what their employees are demanding elements of accountability around, but also their consumer base. And I think that's a really exciting place for us to be in. Definitely. And there's boards that, um, oh, just going to add on this, the corporate social responsibility. I think to Tysi's point, there's been this evolution of it used to be all about, well, we've got a diversity training program, right? So companies felt like, well, we're doing the right things because we put in a diversity team. And, and I've been part of like, you know, Wall Street, corporate America, all of my, all of my life, uh, for the most part, jumped out to more of an independent practice in the past 10 years. And what's, what this year has shown, and thanks, thanks to people like Larry Fink of BlackRock and others that bec have become part of this business roundtable that is looking throughout the stakeholder community, including, and I like your term, you know, social for good, you know, really who are all the actors moving the pieces down that, moving the pieces ahead so that we all benefit. And, it, and corporations now are realizing that, hey, I can't retain employees. Millennials are polling the highest turnover if values aren't aligned in their workplaces. Right. That's scary for uh, us old people that have to find teams to work for us, right? So, so the, the definition from diversity inclusion has changed to now more this broader scope of CSR. Or it's inspiring, either one, mm -hmm. yeah. right? Yeah, I, you know, I, um, I, I want to sort of see if we can move the conversation forward a little bit because I think that language matters, and if we're going to evolve, as both Karen and Steve talked about, that it's it's interesting to think about this. So one of my dear friends, and Steve knows him well, as well as sort of many people call him the, the father of stakeholder management named Ed Freeman, who's a professor at the University of Virginia, um, who wrote a book on strategic stakeholder management in the 70s um, and sent it into a, uh, a um, uh, to have it published. And they told him he had a typo in the, in the, in the title because it said corporate stakeholder responsibility. And they said, you, we know you mean shareholders. So he said, no, I, I mean what I said. But Ed's talking lately about this fact that the CSR, the corporate social responsibility, is no longer useful. It's no longer a useful term. And we need to stop talking about it because just like diversity teams and diversity mm -hmm. inclusion teams and our corporate social responsibility project and group, corporate social responsibility suggests that the social part of business is other than the real part of business, right? So he's been saying for a long time and you know that let's get rid of that as a term. And if you want to use CSR as, a, as an acronym, let's talk about corporate stakeholder responsibility. And then you start to integrate these things, right? Because I have a responsibility to my employees, to my suppliers, to my community, to my, um, uh, you know, to my shareholders, right? 
to my customers. I have a, a, a mutual responsibility to all of them. And if I'm operating with that mindset, I don't, it's like, you know, Polo and I've talked about this for a long time. I used to be in the restaurant business. I don't have, you know, in the restaurant business, if you mess up your station in the kitchen, the chef is going to leave you there all night long cleaning up, as clean as you go, right? And corporate social responsibility is like, we'll do all of our business stuff over here, and then we'll give some money to a 501c3 or to someone individual because we want to clean that stuff up. I mean, people like, you know, Darren from the Ford Foundation has been talking about this for, for a couple of years now, that we have to think differently about CSR and even about philanthropy, right? Because in many ways, he says, you know, Ford Foundation, what are we doing? We're cleaning up the messes that the people who gave us some money made in the first place. Wouldn't it be better if we didn't make those messes in the first place? So I think that that, you know, this language, we are, I think we all probably agree with that, but the language also matters, right? You know, and Jeff, exactly that's interesting. What, uh, oh. oh, sorry. I was going to say with Darren Walker and Ford, and they just, to his, to his great leadership, just announced Project Wanda to redefine exactly that power shift from that origin story of creating problems to this new way that Tysley just said is, look, I, while I'm a 501c3, it, I no longer have, my hand is out in competition with everybody else. And philanthropy has to, has to be at, on a level playing field with, with all the other stakeholders. So, you know, that's such an interesting thing because when you're, because part of my, you know, part of my work is for a large nonprofit like you, Tysley. And uh, we've had conversations, you know, over the years that suggest that um, the viability of nonprofits, and you know, don't quote me on this, but uh, is in danger. And it's in danger because uh, I can go and build an individual donor advised fund and give my money wherever I want. And on, on the one hand, that's a democratization of giving, which is a really important thing. Right. Yes. And if we're going to tell corporate corporations, you know, your CSR things bogus just when they figured out they needed one. So so yeah. our 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 urgent need really is to craft a language that 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 this, these corporate groups can buy and by buy, I mean, see the impact of as it pertains to their internal operations. So. And those of us in the nonprofit world have been looking for the holy grail of our, in, our investments and our donations, which is, what's it doing? Does it do what we want it to do? Does it help the people we meant to help? How do we measure that? I mean, that's clearly the holy grail. And the, the for-profit world, that's their whole reason for being in, in a profit piece. They can measure ROI. And so when we're looking at these corporate responsibility entities inside companies, they need to see the ROI and then they'll stop talking about it as this thing over there. Uh -huh. And so that's really the urgent need on, on, on our parts to, to do that. I mean, I agree with you, Jeff, that language is so critical and we can go down a path and then forget it, right? And Steve, yeah. I just want to build on the point that you made, um, really introducing the notion that all of us need to uh, challenge ourselves to reshape the manner in which we are resourcing, bringing an end to whatever social ill or problem we're seeking to eradicate. 
Right. So within the not-for-profit organization, we have historically relied on contributed income. That is not a business model that is going to be sustainable. Yeah. I think for me, I look back on what really pushed me as a charitable fundraiser uh, to go to business school at Georgetown. It was trying to solve for the fact that I could not bring in revenue through traditional contributed income tracks. I had to be in a position as an executive within a not-for-profit organization to reshape our business model, to not be afraid to take goods and services to market, to say, hey, there's earned income opportunity for us. And so I don't think it's just about saying to companies, hey, how are you rethinking and reshaping the way you're showing up? It's also, um, Steve, as you pointed out, really important for not-for-profit organizations, especially large uh, not-for-profit entities to really think uh, in a creative way how we're going about resourcing problems. Right. Absolutely. Couldn't I, agree more. I, I, put a, I want to add one thing to that because it's really impactful, I think, that um, basically what you were saying. Um, the, the, the idea of the not-for-profit and what are the social ills you're trying to, um, trying to solve for, right? And what I'm always driving for, and there's always room, you know, there's a spectrum um, from, you know, from complete philanthropy to complete capitalism, right? What I'm always driving for, imagine if simply the way we operated our businesses was the thing that solved the social ills, right? Imagine if we could get there, right? Not necessarily the thing that we did, right? It's not, but the way that we did it. Now, that's, a, that's what Simon Sinek would call a just cause, right? We may never get there. But that's the thing that we're driving every day for. Can we imagine a world where that's, where that's possible? And can we, can we rethink the way that we talk about business, the way that we experience business, the way that we practice business on a path to imagining the day when the, the, the simple, simply the way that we operate our businesses is the thing that solves those social ills. I think that if you look at, exactly, I think if you look at, if you went in and spent, like I've done many a day, um, a day or two or a week with Polo and his business, you would start to get a sense, oh, this is what this thing is starting to look like. None of us perfect. But this is what this thing is starting to look like because of the way we treat each other within the organization. When we leave here and because of the way we impact people as we're doing things, we're tamping down lots of social ills. Motley Fool is the same way, right? Yes. They're thinking about how can we operate also in, in, in a manner that that's starting to happen. One of our companies, Hungry Harvest, even though they're also what they do is also doing it, but also how they do it. So that's the thing that I'm always sort of pushing on, you know, not as a not as a way to supplant philanthropy, but as a way to make business better. And I think the how is key. I I talk a lot about a kind of process as as part of an answer. The how helps you replicate that, right? So you can actually see across and sub sub in industry, sub in issue. But if you if you can actually think about a replicable way to do something, you can take that out and scale that across the country, right? Versus the problem that we've had in corporate space and philanthropy is reinvention of so many wheels to figure, to worry about the, the, the what did I do, 
you know, and, and I got an answer for the what, well, no one else can scale that. And so then they're back to square one. And so that process and the how I think are so key to the answer. I, I couldn't agree with you more, Karen. I think when you have a process, you can teach it, mm -hmm. you can fix it, you can retool it, you can hold it up to the light, you can turn it inside out, you can do all kinds of stuff. When you, when you get the product, you got a product. What are you going to do with that? Either right. works or doesn't, right? That reminds me of that, that diagram you used to do. You know, we use the, the line and then the squiggle. You say the magic happens. <laughs> and then a miracle happens. And then a miracle happens, right. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of like the months of COVID during 2020 of January through March are defined. And then they, <laughs> the end of the year. <laughs> you know, can, can we talk about that for a minute? I, Jen, I don't know what, what agenda you really want to follow, but if there's another thing, but we sort of bumped up against a, a few things Karen, you mentioned COVID, but you also mentioned scaling process. And Jeff, you were talking about, actually, we've all been, Tysley, you too, talking about how we end up doing things. We're, a friend of mine said, never waste a good crisis. And if we didn't, if there's not a crisis now, there's never going to be one. And so the opportunity here, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to make light of all the suffering that's happening. I'm, I'm by no means doing that. What I'm saying is that if we, if we imagine that we now have an opportunity, we have a certain freedom that we didn't have before. If you think about the corporate world or any, any, any entity, for-profit or not-for-profit. So all the employees now have this, they've just experienced this diaspora of freedom, right? their freedom from commutes, their freedom from micromanaging bosses, their freedom from the time clock, right? Their freedom from connecting time spent with the product and they're free from location. Oh my goodness. What an amazing opportunity to reconstitute that, sort of manage that freedom and retool it in the ways that we've all been talking about because those demands aren't going to go away. You know, once people have freedom, they don't want to give it up. So how can we convert that? Because that's a broader stakeholder thing. And maybe it's off the subject a little bit, but it, but it goes to the notion that we're going to have to reconstitute culture. This is our chance, mm -hmm. right? So how can we do that? And part of that, Karen, is what you just said. Do we have a process we can plug people and ideas and things into. Because if we don't, we're just gonna be stuck with a bunch of stuff, right? I mean, I think it's so important what you said. And I think mobility, I actually think it matters quite a lot. So if you think about what mobility, the lack of mobility has done for our population, it's kept people um, oftentimes in expense in, in cities that can't afford to live right. with all of the side effects of um, the, the mental health issues that come with that, those stresses in um, environmentally unclean places to be um, at the mercy of a workplace, a, a bricks and mortars workplace. So if you disrupt all that and you think, of, and I can even extrapolate this into the, the area of public education and the youth where kind of Tyson and I know that space really well. And wow, what if you could just kind of blow that wide open and you can solve through this concept of remote, you know, mobility, 
a lot of issues that make lifestyle, mental happiness, innovation, creation, free will expressed in a way that then broadens your economic reach to more and more people. Yeah. Um, I no longer have to live in San Francisco to do the thing at Google, right? right. I can now go live in Kansas if I wanted to and have a farm and plug in and work remotely and have, you know, multiples of the financial wealth and mental health that I would have otherwise had. Um, I think we shouldn't lose sight of that and how we build kind of the employee chain and being really, really creative. And we're even seeing it in my company where we're taking polls, informal polls about, okay, hey, if we fast forward to a place where we're no longer so afraid to convene and be together, then, because I do think we'll have illnesses resurfacing um, just um, through the way that we, we live and how our environment is um, for decades to come. It's gonna look different every time. Do we wanna reconvene? And different groups of people, people that surprise me, not just millennials were like, actually, no, I'm kind of my best self now in this new way. And if you take it away from me and I come back to you and have to convene, all those forcing functions now start to be barriers to creation and innovation for certain people. Um, so anyway, I offer that up because it's just been an interesting way to think about mental health, environmental health, and economic mobility as, as, as levers we should hang on to from this crisis. And you yeah. bring up another point that has to do with equity, mm -hmm. because as we have moved away from offices or physical locations, some people can't afford to have connectivity anymore. And I know that's a fight you've been fighting a long time, Karen, but we're talking about, you know, that's another component that's, it that is. goes along with being and, socially And that gets into the regulatory space. You know, how do we actually think about broadband as water, the way we do with water and electricity and, and, and connection, access points for connection, that if those are now, those are our new necessities, just like we evolved from caves, right? Certain things should, shouldn't be viewed dissimilarly or as luxuries anymore. Yeah. You think, Karen, I have, there's two questions, one for Karen, one for Steve. Um, uh, Steve, do you, it would seem to me that um, a part of your business, sort of the, the, the facilities design part of your business, maybe a leading indicator of sort of what's going to happen next what have you what have you sort of seen there that's my first one question and then karen to your point i think i like this okay this is all good how do we allow others to take advantage of it mm -hmm. um do you think that um it, are we going to see um to your point you think that the the that the regulatory infrastructure is going to get on this and we're going to see it um i see lots of people like you and here in Baltimore, the guy Rowdy Orbit doing some things and trying to increase broadband. But I don't see lots of you know, language coming out of state capitals or other places about it. So just be interested to hear both of you talk on those two things. Yeah, I, I'll just quickly address this. So I put out a white paper at the start of the pandemic on on a lot of the research around poverty and broadband, but in the with the context and the being public ed reform. So how do we continue to um, make better this multi-decade 
the abysmal failure that is our education system. Um, a lot of it lack of resourcing. There are a lot of, a little bit of the broadband question or riddle is happening in a grassroots way in local and municipal uh, regulations. And, and I cite in the paper some, some good proposals coming out that now you have, and there's some energy, energy companies and, um, and, and, and then I call energy light companies um, coming in to be partners to that legislation now finally. Because there is a future, if we think about how we make money in our country, right, and how we continue to fill the coffers with revenue, we talk about philanthropy revenue collection, ours is all, it's a tax base. We have to grow a tax base, which means we have to, I always call, grow a worker, right? How do we actually grow a human to be producing in a way that continues to grow a tax base? That's the riddle to solve. And so many companies and jurisdictions are saying, hey, if, if, we eliminate more and more people from access points. It's actually to their benefit to grow what's a critical piece of our GDP formula in consumption. So, so when you change the story, just like the ROI, the ROI piece we were talking about earlier for a company's math, and if you think about a, a society's, the math of society, you have to be growing that part of the pie. And the, these are now, there's, there's data that demonstrate that equal access, and we can't argue that clean water makes us healthier, makes us able to work, makes us actually produce, right? And that, that kind of thing is starting to take hold and there are many jurisdictions now making proposals in partnership with, with companies of influence. And it's back to, it kind of doesn't matter the entity it, it originates from, whether it's a 501 or for-profit company, we're now all in this, <laughs> like we're all part of this big stakeholder, stakeholder group. Um, and that's what I'm seeing in ways that I've even kind of put research out there and written about um, to kind of support. You can see the position I take on it. I would absolutely try to make it uh, like water, quite honestly. So, so then see the access point thing is connected, right? So if we're getting rid of the access point as an office, what are you, what are you guys seeing from, you know, from clients who are saying, we're going to, are they saying we're going to change the way we do this wholesale or I'm just interested in hearing about that. Yeah, that's probably a longer conversation though, Jeff, but I think you probably know well that I think that the, that the physical piece is really just a manifestation of the, of the larger whole of the cultural attributes of how we do things around yeah. here, of mm -hmm. how we make decisions, how we treat each other, all the decision criteria. It's really an outcome and it, and, and maybe just an enabler, not, not so much a, you know, a, a determinant. The only way it's a determinant is if it keeps you from doing something. So, right. So I think the jury's out on that. And I, and I honestly believe that um, because human beings want to be together, and we uh that's the social part of social responsibility so we'll find a way we'll find a way to do that and my my question is how can we how can we use this opportunity to you know to kind of recast that social contract with one another inside businesses and out and i'm curious because tysley you know you probably have you, you have a different uh position thinking about just the social responsibility part but what do nonprofits have to teach 
the for-profit world that could that could help you know bring the, bring these two kind of things together. So, Steve, I'm going to extend um, Jeff's question, Karen's okay. response, and then circle back to what I think sure. is a teachable moment and opportunity. So one thing that not-for-profit organizations are really doing is focusing on systems change. Uh, we recognize that by and large, we've been raising awareness and resources to really deal with symptoms of problems rather than getting to the root causes of problems. And so I lift up uh, recently, there was um, a company who uh, Procter & Gamble unveiled that they're making a multi-million dollar 10 plus year commitment investing in um, men of color, particularly black guys. What Procter & Gamble's Old Spice brand is doing as the largest marketer in the world isn't just popping up ads to speak to why it's important to invest in black guys having access to education and gainful employment. They are also layering into that their public affairs team to say, hey, we're interested in learning more about the impediments, the barriers, and we are actually going to state capitals. We're actually going to the U.S. capital. We are actually investing in advocacy and activism that's going to bring about some systemic change to get to a place in space where we're not just applauding um, outputs, but we're really working towards an overall outcome. And I think, Steve, where I think we can all um, lift a lesson from not-for-profit organizations is we are exceptional at building community. And when you look at community nestled within yeah. that is the actual verb unity. And then if you deal a little bit more into that, you see that I, the I for individual identities. And not-for-profit organizations are fantastic about diversifying human resources. And I think whether it's diversity of thought, whether it's gender, race, socioeconomic class, not-for-profit organizations do a fantastic job by and large creating community where people feel valued and individuals feel as if regardless of their identity, they can bring their talents and skills and they're able to work towards a common purpose. And so I think Steve, one um, advice that I have for corporate entities is to make space. And that tends to be a really hard thing I have found within the corporate culture, because I think there's something that people really take um, levels of pride almost in being guarded and having an identity associated with the brand and protecting, you know, um, manner in which the business operates. You know, there's a lot of built in within the culture, there's a lot of uh, need or attempt to keep things tight, to keep things close knit. And it doesn't necessarily seem that corporate um, entities is a space where uh, individuals can parachute in and add value. So would really just love to see uh, companies just create space um, for more individuals. And I think it will um, prove to be a positive outcome for for the larger community. Um, yeah, interesting. Thank you. Oh, Karen, one second. What, would yeah. like, um, I want to just also say too that like, just to bring this to the audience who might not know all of you individually, um, 
part of the conversation right now is amazing because we're all here to solve this problem, right? And I just want to take a pause to tell the audience that and how important it is to have you all here um, from Steve and what he's doing from a aspect with offices where it's not offices, it's culture. And we can have culture, you don't have to physically be there for the culture. And I just think that um, I wanted to reiterate that to the audience members because I don't want to interrupt the conversation flowing because it's amazing, but I wanted to just note that. But Karen, you had something to say. I was going to add to what Tessie said because it's exactly right. Like in the, the nonprofit space versus, it's always been a nonprofit versus for-profit, right? And so it's yeah. like two, two, super, two superheroes on the other side of the, the warp zone. And the issue that you have is that in corporations in the for-profit land, it's guarded because there's this, this socialization that has always been embedded in that culture that, oh gosh, for me to win, someone else has to lose, right? And in the nonprofit space, it's less about the, the winning. We're trying to solve because we've done such an amazing job at inclusive community building that we view it, although it's really rising, if we can get it right, right? And so what nonprofit doesn't get right sometimes is the resourcing and the capacity building and how do they actually scale anything, right? And, and like to me, kind of hovering in both of those spaces, you know, the competitive piece of it is almost a deterrent in the for-profit space because they have a tough time holding space because they're like, oh, no, no, Maya, if I share any of this, you know, special recipe, my share price is going to suffer. I'm going to lose, competitors going to win, right? And that, that paradigm has to shift. You know, I uh, just w w one one last thing about that because wearing both uh, some role in both the for-profit and nonprofit world, you know, we spent the last ten years trying to help nonprofits think more like businesses. Only that probably wasn't the right model. What we meant was how do we measure impact, which is different than act like a business, unless we can do as Jeff's suggesting and his group is working so hard to do, we can have businesses act like they, like we're all talking about uh, intrinsically, not because, you know, there's some rule that we have to follow or some, some special sauce, like you said, Karen, we got to keep close to the vest, right? So this just has more questions for me. I think we, <laughs> you know, I, you, you thought you had some answers. We need a follow-up follow session. We need a round two. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're going to do it. We're definitely going to do a round two. Yeah. Definitely awesome. going to do a round two. Um, and I think it's interesting just to note here as well, you know, this year, again, it's been a very tough year for the world mentally, um, you know, probably physically with some, you know, people suffering from, from the virus. But at the same time, I've been saying this, you know, since the, since the beginning of the pandemic or the pan, like I like to call it, we, we, un, we, we basically took the curtain and just threw it like we, un, you know, we're all behind the curtain now. Right. And we all see everything and we're all, when it comes to the private sector, as we've noticed, it's our responsibility, but not a responsibility. It's what we should be doing in our mission. It should be ingrained all the time. I mean, at the end of the day, it comes down to 
the corporations. I mean, seeing how everyone stepped up, stopped their production to make masks and, you know, um, uh, equipment for the hospitals. I mean, it, it was to see that shift in turning it around for all the social good. I mean, it's really powerful. And hence this conversation is, you know, you, I can always, I could talk about the future of the workplace for hours. Steve knows this. I did a whole series of on my podcast for the future of the workplace, but it's larger than that. It's not snacks in the office anymore. Right. Like, no. or, or a day no. work from home day. It's so much larger than that. And I think that that's, the, that's what we're trying to solve as a, as a, as a unit. Exactly. Right. Yep. I agree. Well, we, that, all it means is we need, we need another session. Right. Exactly. Exactly. It, it is the irony of the the curtain being open and everybody seeing everything is that we're seeing it, you know, locked away privately in our homes. Right. We're actually not right. out in the open seeing right. each other, and um, we're actually witnessing this and observing this through every, all all the ways that technology and digital spaces are allowing us to, which is pretty incredible innovation um, and kind of to not waste a crisis. I am hopeful that we pull some of that forward and don't suddenly start to close those curtains again, um, thinking that the problems are solved um, because you that's can- That's my fear. Them. Yeah, that's my fear is that we're gonna, that we're gonna, we're gonna slide back. Mm -hmm. Well, we don't have to. We don't. Right. And, and those of us who who refuse to, you know, do things the way they used to be done, because they're actually not applicable anymore. It doesn't matter what you say. You know, the the earth revolves around the sun. I don't care what you say. I don't care if you say sunset and sunrise it doesn't happen. So, you know, we've got we've got an incredible opportunity and we can we can resist that that status quo, that inertia back to whatever, because yeah. we, and, and if we don't, shame on us, right? What an opportunity. I'll get off my soapbox now, but. I think that's right, Steve. <laughs> my, my heart is definitely leaning in your direction and saying, this is an awakening. And I too believe um, that we have within reach the ability to sustain all that is before us as opportunities are concerned. My head is leaning in the direction of Jeff because even through my lived experiences, I have seen us collectively as a community have great intentions to maximize opportunity, but for whatever reason, uh, not be in a position to do so. So my head and heart are in this field and Jeff, Steve's Venn like, bring it together. Head and heart. Bring it we, we can do well, it. I think it's, I think it's these, these conversations that are going to help us not slide back. That's right. Great. I think we have to have more of these. We have to expand this, this circle. We have to do this consistently in forums like this, but outside of forums like this, those are going to be the things that keep us from sliding back. Agreed. Yeah. And Karen, you know this better than anyone at this table. Uh, is that what does it say on an investment prospectus? Uh, no, cannot guarantee results. Past <laughs> performance is no Past indication. Is no indication. <laughs> yes. Bingo. That's well, right. <laughs> that is that is a great uh, that is a great ending 
to the conversation. I would not like to end it, but at the same time, I know we, I don't want to take up more of your time, but I do think that it would be uh, great to have round two, uh, definitely. And we will throw in another guest as well. But I think, you know, thank you all just for joining. And, 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 and I was going to ask, what does the future look like? But I think we kind of all were just naturally answered that question at the end, um, at the end here. So I just want to thank everyone. This has been such a fruitful conversation, exactly what I wanted. So thank you. Um, and I will hopefully see you all soon, socially distant. It's been a Karen week. We're having Karen on another podcast as well. But um, <laughs> I just want to thank you all. And um, it's been great. I'm your host, Jen Sherman. Uh, we are here at our another influencer collective roundtable. We'll be having lots of these winners come and it's going to be a long winter and we have a lot of problems to solve. So thank you so much. And we will catch you next time. Did you enjoy the jingle? That song is called luxury and it's by me, Kat Janice. Find me on Spotify, Apple music, YouTube, wherever you get your tunes to hear my newest single luxury. It's a luxury.